Look what I brought with me. A Bible. <laughs> yeah, Bible, the scripture is always printed in our lesson book. And so we take it for granted that you've read the scripture and go on from there. But I felt that it was an imperative on today's lesson for you to hear the words on which the lesson is based. More than that, I thought you needed to hear it read from today's English version and not the King James Version. Now, the, today's English version was translated by the American Bible Society about 30 years ago, and it's my favorite of all the modern translations. So you can listen to our lesson today for contrast primarily. Everybody put a smile on your face before we read this. <laughs> Marjorie Wilson's not here, is she? Marjorie called me last Sunday after the lesson, and she said, I feel sorry for you having to teach Ecclesiastes. She said, I tried, I'll just managed to stay out of that book the best I can. Well, listen to these words. Be grateful for every year you live. No matter how long you live, remember that you will be dead much longer. <laughs> there is nothing at all to look forward to. Young people, enjoy your youth. Be happy while you are still young. Do what you want to do and follow your heart's desire. But remember that God is going to judge you for whatever you do. Don't let anything worry you or cause you pain. You aren't going to be young very long. <laughs> so remember your creator while you're still young before those dismal days and years come when you will say, I don't enjoy life. That is, when the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars will grow dim for you, and the rain clouds will never pass away, then your arms that have protected you will tremble, and your legs, now strong, will grow weak. Your teeth will be too few to chew your food, and your eyes too dim to see clearly. Your ears will be deaf to the noise of the street, you will barely be able to hear the mill as it grinds or music as it plays. But even the song of a bird will wake you from sleep. You will be afraid of high places and walking will be dangerous. Your hair will turn white. You will hardly be able to drag yourself along and all desire will be gone. We are going to our final resting place and then there will be mourning in the streets the silver chain will snap and the golden lamp will fall and break. The rope at the well will break and the water jar will be shattered. Our bodies will return to the dust of the earth and the breath of life will go back to God who gave it to us. Useless, useless, says the philosopher. It is all useless. I ended up lifting. 
Now, I'll make a confession along with Marjorie. I had not read one word in the book of Ecclesiastes since I left seminary. And the reason is there are too many other readings in the Bible that are uplifting, positive, to spend time with a man who has nothing but a bleak, negative view on life. But the book is powerful in its contrast, and therefore it does have a great value to us as we study what the philosopher has to say. Obviously, he has had some most distressing experiences in his own life, and he has allowed that to color what life is all about. But we need to remember at the very foundation of the thoughts of the philosopher, he didn't know that there is a life after death. To him, everything ended with death, and therefore life is useless. Put up with what you have to put up with. Find joy where you can, but remember this, you don't live very long, but you're dead for a mighty long time. <laughs> Christians have every reason in the world to be joyful. Don't get mired down in negative theology. There are many who rejoice in their negativity. I have known many people in my life who would feel at home in Ecclesiastes. They see nothing good about anything, critical of all that they experience, have never discovered the joy that comes from being a Christian and living by means of a Christian faith. Lindy Marklin was a rising young executive in a major corporation in one of my churches. Lindy was in his late 30s had a brilliant future lying ahead, had ascended the ladder of success quite rapidly. He had developed an interest now in religion, had become involved in the church, and this particular year, because he was able to get away, he was elected to go to annual conference from that particular church. He had never been to annual conference before. His relationship in a business manner with the church was very thin, very little exposure to the workings of the church because of his lack of interest up until this time. So he went away to annual conference. After conference was over, he came to me and he said, Vance, I can't believe what I saw. He said these were people, many of whom didn't know one another, and they laughed and they slept one another on the back and they were having the time of their lives. And those who were acquainted with each other grouped and told stories, jokes. Everybody was having a great time. He said, I have been to conventions in some of the most exclusive resorts in America and I have never seen joy at a convention. 
until we had the banquet and everyone had a drink or two, loosened up, and then everybody had a great time. But these were happy people, and they hadn't had their drink or two to loosen up. He said, my eyes have really been open to what I have always heard, that Christians are happy people, that Christians enjoy life. Life becomes what we are willing to make of it. It is not predetermined by anyone as to what life will unfold for you. The opportunities are all predetermined. God has created a world in which there is no limit to the length to which we can go, the depth to which we can root ourselves, and the height to which we can aspire. There is no limit. What comes from all of this depends entirely upon us. Now, there's a great tradition in the church from people on the outside who say Christians are sour, dour, colorless people. Many think that that's what it is to be a Christian, is to deny yourself all of the joys and pleasures in life. I have great respect for the Amish. I had known of them by my readings, had never been acquainted with any, but got a picture of what their values were, their theology was. About 20 years ago, I went to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania for a new life mission from the Board of Discipleship. I was there for a week. The host at the church drove me out and showed me the Amish community, driving about in black buggies, dressed in black clothes, never a smile on the face, no color anywhere, except on the barns assembled to ward off evil spirits. Everything was colorless, there was no joy, no singing. And I thought, how can anyone enjoy life in an environment like that? When there is so much that is beautiful, so expressive in life to make it worthwhile. You can't even zip up your jackets. You've got a button at one button at a time if you're Amish. All of the simple pleasures are denied you. Now, you know me well enough to know that I don't put down anyone else's religion. Let me go back to what I said. I have great admiration for the Amish, but I do not agree with their theology of deprivation. While I was in seminary, I was appointed to the church at Friendsville, Tennessee. Friendsville gets its name from the fact that it was a Quaker community, the Friends, the Society of Friends. Almost everyone in the community was Quaker at that time. It's quite a resort now on the lake, but back then it was just a rural community. One of our best friends was the Quaker minister and his wife who lived diagonally across the street from the Methodist Parsonage. A delightful couple. Their lives were colorless. She did not wear makeup, did not wear jewelry, did not wear colorful clothes. Everything was drab in their home. They could not go to the movies because it was sinful to go to the movies. But she loved to watch movies on television. I never did understand that. <laughs> we kept in touch long after we left Friendsville and every year got a letter at Christmas time. They were 
always talking about the Wesleyan Methodist Church as though they wished they were Wesleyan Methodists, but they couldn't get, couldn't get out of the Quaker background in which they had been nurtured. They moved to the state of Washington where he was assigned to a church, but it was only a short time until he gave up the ministry and became a high school counselor. One year, we got a Christmas letter and as usual began to tell all of the things that occurred. And then suddenly my eyes grew large because the next line read, last week, my wife prepared the children for school got me off to my office, and when the house was quiet, she put on her coat, got in the car, drove down to a downtown bridge, and leaped off to her dad. She was imprisoned in a theology that was not satisfying, but one from which she could not break away. Life is joyful. Find it. Don't let anyone convince you that a long face and a dour attitude will enhance your spirituality. John Wesley said, sour godliness is the devil's religion. And I can speak out of experience. There's no greater joy than living with a faith that is sufficient, with a relationship that is promising, and with hope that tomorrow is going to be greater than today. There's no despair in the life of a Christian, only joy, a positive attitude. Life lays out before each one of us infinite possibilities. It's up to us what we do with them. Some of us play the waiting game Waiting for tomorrow when things will get better. Waiting for tomorrow when I have more money to spend, when I'm more successful in my work. Jim, you and I know ministers who start preparing for their next church the minute they get into the one to which they've been appointed. <laughs> Always waiting for something in the future that is going to bring what I want. Not finding it at the present because tomorrow is going to bring it to me. We play the waiting game. One of my favorite poems is one that I've shared with you before, a poem from the Sanskrit. Look to this day, for it is life, the very life of life. In its brief course lie all the varieties and realities of your existence, the bliss of growth, the splendor of beauty, the glory of action. For yesterday is but a dream, and tomorrow is only a vision. But today, well lived, makes every yesterday a dream of happiness, and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Look well, therefore, to this day. When we're waiting for something to come, it never arrives. While we allow that which lies all about us to grow fallow because we are not willing to discover the joys of the present moment. And some of us never discover the joy of the religious life because we become imprisoned. Sometimes there is an imprisonment 
of a child's mind in an adult body. And how sad and tragic that is. I went to one church early in my ministry and was visiting with one of the families. From a nearby room, I kept hearing the strains of jingle bells on a music box. I figured that there was a little child in there enjoying Christmas, though it was in July. <laughs> After a while, it grew just a little tiring, and the father went into the room and stopped the music and brought out the young man who was playing the music box. He was about 35 years old, and he smiled, and he came over and greeted me excitedly, and I wanted to cry because a 35-year-old man who never got beyond the ability to think and feel of an eight-year-old. Sometimes, tragically, we are trapped because of nature, but many times we trap ourselves. We trap ourselves in a limited theology and a limited experience out of our prejudice. We make up our minds long before the evidence is in, and we don't let anything deter the decision that we've reached or the conclusion to which we've come. People who live with prejudices have built walls around themselves, and there's no way that they can break through those walls to experience things as they really are. We create them the way we want them to be, superficial as that may be, and we miss out on the facts and the realities of things the way they are. We imprison ourselves by prejudice, and we imprison ourselves by small goals. We look on such shallow opportunities and never see what we can really become or what life can really be. Such limited goals when there's so much to discover and so much to be. I had a man in a church who was quite wealthy. He owned a big enterprise that gave him security from the very beginning. He didn't have to go to his office. He didn't have to work. Respected member of the community. He took me into a room in his house one day, and it was covered with shelves, boxes on shelves, and every shelf was filled with boxes. Every box was filled with trinkets. And he smiled and he said, <clears throat> as a young man, I was walking along the road one day, and I glanced down, something was shiny, and I picked it up, and it was a pen that somebody had lost. And I picked it up and I thought, no telling how many treasures I walk over every day, never seeing them. So he set out for the rest of the day and found any number of little trinkets, one sort of another on the ground, put them in his pocket, carried them home. He found a fascination in that. And now he's in his 60s. And he said, you know, every day of my life since then, I have refused to let a day pass without my finding something that I can add to my collection. And so he spent his days walking around, looking at the ground, 
<laughs> Thrown away cigarette stubs, chewing gum papers. And overhead, there are beautiful clouds and the birds are singing. Nearby was a beautiful river coursing through the town, flowers blooming. And Fred walked around looking for something on the ground to add to his collection. We can set our goals so close to the ground that life doesn't give us joy, or they can be so lofty that the joy comes in reaching. There's a greater joy in the reaching and the striving for than there is in the finding. And that's what makes life tomorrow a greater promise than what we accomplished yesterday. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes touched upon these things because he said, get out of every day what you can. While you're young, hold on to youth. Well, don't hold on too strongly to youth. It saddens me to see beautiful women of the past in Hollywood who can't give it up and they pare down their skin, take away their wrinkles, and after a while they look freakish, trying to hold on to youth. That is an imposition that we put upon ourselves that will never bring fulfillment. Once youthful beauty is gone, it's gone. Once your hair's gone, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> my daughter's birthday was on Thursday, and my son's birthday is today. And so yesterday, Mike and Nancy had us to their home to celebrate the birthdays of the two. And while there, my other son brought a picture that he had made at Christmas of the entire clan. We had been at Mike's home, and he had made a picture of the whole group. And there I sat in the very middle. <laughs> and there was someone with a white coat on behind me. <laughs> and I looked and I said, oh, if only I had hair. Because what hair I had blended in with the white background. <laughs> I looked like I was 110. <laughs> and I know in reality I looked 39, and I tried to convince most of <clears throat> The writer of Ecclesiastes says that we go through stages of life beginning with youth and then going into old age where life becomes a drudge. It isn't that at all. William Shakespeare and As You Like has said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They make their exits and their entrances and each man in his time plays many roles. Or let me bring it up to date every man and woman in his or her time plays many roles. And then he names the seven stages of life through which we pass, starting out with a, an infant 
with his sputtering and his helplessness. And the last stage is second childhood with his sputtering and his helplessness. Don't believe it for a minute. I've passed through many of these stages. Plan to go through many more. And I can honestly say I have never been happier in my life than I am now. Every age to which I have come has been greater than the one before. And without looking ahead to better times, I have found that they came just with the passage of time. If I were to be granted the privilege of going back to any previous stage of my life and beginning life again at that point, I would reject everyone. I don't want to leave where I am. Browning was right. If your health holds up, and Jim, as far as I know, there's not a thing in the world wrong with me, <laughs> except I take a high blood pressure pill every morning. Grow old along with me, the yeah, best is yet to be. And theologically, when death comes, the greatest of all, the best of all, is the next stage of living. So by contrast, the writer of Ecclesiastes has been very revealing in his pessimism because it gives us an opportunity to see what it is really like when you have the proper attitude, the proper approach, and when you understand what life is really all about. But only for the one whose faith is in Christ, whose hope is in immortality. Any comments or questions on today's lesson? Hey, Randy, I don't recall you reading in that scripture. There was one line, a couple of lines in that lesson that said, your, your body returns to dust and your breath returns to God. So there was some hint in Ecclesiastes of something happening hereafter, even though it was it's kind of dismal. Well, it's a recognition of the fact that God breathed into us his breath. When life is over, we go back to dust, and his breath goes back to him. So, there's, so there's no immortality there. That in that. He's at least acknowledging yeah. that state. Well, when this was written, there was no belief in eternal life. That had not come into the Jewish faith. That came much later in time. And so to him, when death came, that's it. It's all over. But this is just an explanation of what happens to the breath of God. Your body returns to dust and the breath of God goes back to his nostrils. Any other comment or observation on today's lesson? I've seen the, the license plates. Um, lights the beach and then you die. And I often thought, how dismal. How could somebody even actually put that on their car? You know, but now I know it was probably the writer of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> 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 yeah. That's, yeah. Well, life is so full of promise. Yeah. And 
So many people wait for it to be served instead of discovering that the real joy is bringing it to the table. I'd just like to say I've never met anybody who believed in that slogan, who would have an agenda of his own, in other words, without God in his life. And it seems to be a real, well, back in the 70s and 80s, it was a real thing to do if you, it feels good, do it. And that attitude is still around people who um, say those kind of things use that as a reason for their either immoral or unspiritual style of living. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, follow your whims when you're young. Do what you want to do. And then he said, but remember, God's going to judge you if you do the wrong things. <laughs> so he took the pleasure out of it right at the beginning, didn't he? <laughs> but Vance, don't you think, if we go back and we think about Solomon, Solomon has proven to be more than likely the writer of Ecclesiastes. And we think about the kind of life that Solomon lived as king, how he actually strayed from the basis of his own personal religion and faith, and how in doing that, he also transmitted to his own progeny a basically selfish, uh, uncaring attitude, one which was not uh, filled with any level of enlightenment. That perhaps as Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, he was actually in between the lines saying, you know, if I could do this over, maybe, just maybe, I might have done some things differently. Well, you made a very good observation there. If Solomon is indeed the writer, and Bible scholars debate the issue, if he is the writer, look what he did with his life. He bankrupted his nation. He turned his people into slaves. He taxed them to death, built palaces for himself, had dozens and dozens of wives and concubines. And built temples to their gods. And, and built temples to their gods. And even worshipped in those temples. Right. So you're exactly right. He was speaking out of the experiences of a lifetime in which he had failed to have proper relations. We're glad you came three times. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. I just regret that I haven't had the, uh, uh, the, the fellowship and the ability to hear you for, uh, I just miss those, those times of listening. It's been a blessing. And I want to tell the class here, you all have a, it's like a double-barreled uh, uh, opportunity at Muncie to have somebody like Vance. A real Absolutely. spiritual blessing. And thank you for, for what you meant evidently to this class and to our church. I'm glad I said what I did to it. <laughs>